thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting our show. I'll say more about this later, but just remember, using the internet without ExpressVPN is like driving without car insurance. Visit expressvpn.com slash hopeful to get an extra three months free on a one-year package. We also want to thank our other sponsor, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you'll love since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts. We totally enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Only 4% of all police time in this country is spent on what police themselves call violent crime. 96% of it is spent on other things. The most common police arrest in many jurisdictions in this country is driving on a suspended license. And there are 11 million people with suspended licenses, not because they're bad drivers, but because they owe debt. The second most common arrest in many jurisdictions and the most common arrest in other jurisdictions is possession of marijuana, possession of other drugs. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest is Alec Kerr-Katsanis, the founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. We talk about his book, Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System, reveal how the punishment bureaucracy works and how we can rethink our legal system. He argues that we suffer from a frequent delusion that prisons exist to lower crime rates, when in fact the problem is much deeper and complex. We start our conversation with defining what the punishment bureaucracy is. I think the punishment bureaucracy is a term that I use to capture the whole array of institutions that elites and powerful people in our society have constructed to what they would call, quote unquote, enforce the law. And what I would call is sort of enforce dominant distributions of wealth and power in our society. And so this includes things like police, probation officers, parole officers, prosecutors, judges, clerks, all of the attendant people who work in that system, who are the ones who control the prison and jail phone calls, the prison and jail medical care, the array of private corporations that produce the handcuffs, the bulletproof vests and the tasers. I think of all of these individuals and and organizations and, and corporate interests as part of a metastasized bureaucracy that is really unlike anything that we have seen in the modern history of the world. Keep in mind, no society has ever tried to take 11 million people from their schools and homes and families and churches and jobs, mental health care and medical care every single year and put them into government-run cages of concrete and metal. And to do that, and to do that on such a scale, you need to create a pretty massive bureaucracy. And so I use that broad term, what some people might call the the justice system or the legal system. I like to think of it as a broader bureaucracy because I think that better captures the project that it's engaged in. One of the big things that you point to in your book is that the problem starts with us as a society and the punishment bureaucracy, having never actually examined whether incarceration benefits us as a society, does it make it better? And whether the real cost of mass incarceration, the way that we're experiencing it in real life, in real time in our society is worth it. What have you discovered as you wrote this book and you wrestled with this question? I thought about writing the book because I was looking out across the system and I saw so many people operating under such 
misconceptions of what the system is doing and why it's doing it. For example, I, I walked into a courtroom in 2014 when I first became a civil rights lawyer. It was in Montgomery, Alabama, and I saw 67 people in chains and jail garb. All of them are black. Not one of them were charged with a crime. They were all there because they owed money on unpaid debts that, that they were given by police officers who gave them tickets. And they were so poor, they couldn't pay. And one by one, they came up to the judge and they begged. You know, they said, Your Honor, I have four children at home. I'm a single mother. Please don't put me in jail. Your Honor, I've been addicted to, to drugs. I just don't have the money. Please don't put me in jail. And every single one of them, the judge said, pay me a certain amount of money or go to jail. And that night when I, I went up into the jail and I was interviewing the people who I'd seen in court and I met a woman who had been separated from her children for a couple of weeks. She had no idea where her babies were. She'd been watching TV with her one-year-old in her lap and her four-year-old next to her. The police raided her home because she owed tickets from four years prior. And I thought to myself, as I went across the country and I saw this in dozens of cities that I visited, as you take a look across the legal system, it becomes very clear very quickly that the system has nothing to do with public safety or preventing crime, and everything to do with social control. And when you start to learn about the history of the system, there are certain lessons that I think are really unmistakable. Number one, this notion of public safety and police reducing crime is a very modern notion. It arises in the middle to second half of the 20th century. Prior to that, everyone understood that police were sort of a natural evolution of slave patrols and private security forces of large corporations seeking to bust union-related worker organizing and uprising. Everybody understood that the role of the police was to serve wealthy and powerful interests in society. And it's only really post-civil rights movement in this country that we start to see this kind of rhetoric really take shape that actually, no, the police aren't around to promote and serve the interests of the ruling class. They are, in fact, here for all of us, for, for something that they've now called public safety and prevent crime. And the second lesson is, is that if you actually look at what police do, all of these truths are hiding in plain sight. While police often justify their use to us as you know violent crime, um, only 4% of all police time in this country is spent on what police themselves call violent crime. 96% of it is spent on other things. The most common police arrest in many jurisdictions in this country is driving on a suspended license. And there are 11 million people with suspended licenses, not because they're bad drivers, but because they owe debt. The second most common arrest in many jurisdictions and the most common arrest in other jurisdictions is possession of marijuana, possession of other drugs. And if you go back and look at the history of drug prohibition, you can see that in very intentional ways, first with opium, which is a, an effort to give police more power to control Chinese American immigrants, then with cocaine, which was a direct result of the desire to give police more power to control and cage black Americans in the South. Marijuana was criminalized as a way to control Mexican-American immigrants and to give police more discretion and power to come up with pretextual reasons for bringing these populations under the coercive control of the government. Across every domain of the criminal law, this is what's actually going on. It has never been about public safety. And the way you know that is you look at our society and you see that for all of the tens of billions of dollars that we spend on the punishment bureaucracy every single year, the trillions that we've spent since 1980 alone, the tens of thousands of home raids, the millions of children we've separated from their parents, the tens of millions of people that have been in cages. After all of that, drug usage rates are higher 
than they were in many respects than before the so-called war on drugs. And the same is true with respect to all of the so-called violent crimes. And so when a system is doing stuff that is counterproductive for so long, you have to start asking yourself the question, is this system broken or is this system actually not broken, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. It's just doing things that are different from what it tells us it's supposed to be doing. Well, you argue very eloquently that it is working the way it's intended to work, which is to basically assert power over vulnerable populations for whatever reasons, whether they're owing money or whether they're just plain poor or whether they're the wrong color. So one of the big movements today, of course, is criminal justice reform. And their goal is to address this question, except they're really coming at it from the wrong angle, is what you argue. Why is our current idea of criminal justice reform, the way that we commonly talk about it in the media or in public discourse, both deceptive and harmful? I think it's deceptive because many of the people who are leading criminal justice reformers are the very same people who built this mass incarceration bureaucracy, the very same people who profited from it and who still profit from it. And what these people are trying to do is use the label of reform to perpetuate many of the same practices and injustices with different labels. I've been working a lot on the bail system, which keeps 400,000 human beings in jail cells every single night just because they can't pay cash. And most people now understand that the cash bail system is horribly unjust. But the response of the punishment bureaucrats isn't to try to liberate more and more people from jail and to really transform the system. It's to reproduce a lot of the same outcomes with different labels. So, for example, Democrats pushed through a reform bill in California a few years ago, which thankfully the voters rejected in this past election. That reform bill got rid of the cash bail system. You might think that's really good, but what did it do instead? It dramatically expanded the ability to detain people without cash bail. So much of the quote-unquote reforms are fake, and so much so that we got rid of the cash bail system because of bail reform efforts in the federal court system in the 1980s. And after we got rid of them, we tripled the rate at which people were detained. So in the early 1980s, when we still used cash bail, about a quarter of all people charged with federal crimes were so poor that they were stuck in jail prior to their trial. It was a big problem. But now, three quarters of people charged with federal crimes are stuck in jail prior to their trial. And those people are more disproportionately poor and more disproportionately Black and more disproportionately immigrant than they were before. So we did, quote unquote, reform, but we tripled the problem if the problem is the number of people in cages. So I try to warn about reforms like this. I think other examples of this are more money and, and resources for training of police departments, body cameras for police, which was a goal of police unions and police officers for many, many years, but they couldn't get local governments to give them enough money for their budget for that. So what do they do? They use their own violence against black people as an excuse to get moderate and, and white liberals to support increased funding for police to give body cameras to police. Instead of asking more fundamental questions like, why are the police in these neighborhoods? Why are they armed? What are they doing? Do they keep us safe? These are the kinds of essential questions that punishment bureaucrats never want you asking because they would result in things like reducing the amount of resources spent on police and increasing the amount of money spent on things like mental health treatment, first responders that aren't cops, poetry and music and theater and arts programs for children and, and more money for teachers, et cetera. 
So if we were, in fact, really interested in public safety, where do you recommend we look first and ask that existential question? What is really serving the public good in terms of safety? I think different communities have different answers to this question. But some of the things I've heard people come up with around the country are things like, we need medical clinics and healthcare. We need therapy to be accessible. We need to be working on programs that reduce toxic masculinity in our communities. We need to be providing our children with things like art and music and theater and poetry and athletics. We need to be enabling people in our community to have more complete, holistic, flourishing lives. And all of this money we're spending on punishment and the police bureaucracy is only further traumatizing people. And all of the data supports this, by the way. The data is very clear that throwing people in jail and prison actually increases crime that's committed later because it, it re-traumatizes people and doesn't actually give people the things that they need, like adequate access to employment and whatnot. So in terms of budgets, I mean, I think this is one of the big things when you talked just now about getting more funding for body cameras, but actually they're using maybe only a part of that for body cameras. And really they're just getting more funding for police squads all over the country. What do you think in terms of public safety and real reform about defunding the police? Where does that square with what you've written and how you're thinking about it today? The number one question you ask yourself when considering a particular proposed reform in the criminal system is, does this reform give more money and resources and power to the punishment bureaucracy? And if it does, you should oppose it. Does this reform shrink the punishment bureaucracy? And if it does, you should support it. And this is true for several reasons. Number one, the money and resources that go into the criminal system are used on weapons and surveillance and caging and handcuffs that are going to be used against black and brown people. And so the fewer cops with fewer guns and fewer surveillance technologies at their disposal is going to result in less pain inflicted on poor communities. But number two, the more you put into that, the more powerful these forces get. The more money you give to police department budgets, the more money goes to police unions, the more money is spent on politicians and campaigns to keep that budget cycle going, the more money is spent on private corporations, which then lobby for more and more money to be spent. Once you create these bureaucracies and these people who profit off of it to the tune of billions of dollars, it actually becomes much more difficult as a political matter to get that next reform. And so all of your reform should be aimed at reducing the size and the power of this bureaucracy. Shrinking police budgets is an absolute necessity. If, if you remember nothing else from this discussion, it's how do we support reducing the size and power of police bureaucracies and taking the money that we're currently spending on that and spending it on things that we actually know communities need, like mental health care, medical care, teachers, programming for children that are building the kinds of bonds and relationships that make a healthy community. Remember when I said earlier that using the internet without ExpressVPN is like driving without car insurance? Before we continue with the interview, let me explain that a little bit more. Every time you connect to any unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data. It's easy to do and allows them to steal your bank info, social security number, and lots of other sensitive information. 
Enter ExpressVPN. It acts as online insurance and creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet, making it impossible for hackers to steal your personal data. Also, if you're a long-time listener of the show, you'll remember last year when we talked about surveillance capitalism and the ways giant companies also steal your data and use it to manipulate you. Well, ExpressVPN stops that too, which is one of the main reasons I have it installed on all of my devices. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com hopeful. That's E-X-P-R essvpn.com slash hopeful and you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash hopeful do you love interview podcasts i assume you do because you've made it this far in mine if that's the case, I really recommend you check out The Jordan Harbinger Show. I know that every day somebody tells you that you just have to listen to some podcast and you nod and say, sure, and then you never listen to it. Seriously, don't let that happen here. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes to authors to policy wonks and beyond. And his questioning is designed to answer questions you didn't even know you had. His goal is to make you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening instead of letting someone else tell you what to think. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I feel like this conversation is really not complete without also talking openly and honestly about what happens behind bars. Your book is full of so many harrowing examples of how terrible conditions are, but also that we are so conditioned to the usual cruelty of putting people in these cages. What is maybe your most gut-punching example in terms of illustrating just how bad it is to be in jail, and especially given that most people are in jail for not paying parking tickets. I, I always hesitate to give individual examples because one of the overwhelming points that I want people to understand is that the scope of the pain that is being inflicted is absolutely catastrophic. There are millions of human beings right now in cages, and we have allowed our cages to become grotesque torture chambers. The typical experience in the hundreds of places that I've uh, seen and the many more that I've read about, our cages are places where people are deprived of sunlight and fresh air and exercise and adequate food. In many jails that I've seen, people are sleeping on top of each other in the midst of urine and feces and blood and mucus and mold. There are huge rates of physical and sexual assault in our jails, astronomical rates. And this has been documented by every academic and government watchdog that has ever examined these institutions. Solitary confinement, what the UN considers torture, is rampant throughout this country. You're not allowed to hug anyone. You're not allowed to see your children 
in most jails around the country, they have now privatized and monetized human contact. Um, large corporations like Securus and Global Tellink have monopoly contracts with local jails, and they got them to get rid of in-person visits with people's families. Why? Because the theory is that they'll spend more money on exorbitant monopoly phone calls if you deprive them of their ability to actually see their loved ones. And they're right. And then they give a kickback of that money to the local jail. So everyone is making money off of depriving mothers and fathers, daughters and sons of the ability to see their parents and their loved ones. And this is just the beginning. We see examples every single day that would shock you to the core. Like just a couple of weeks ago, we found a 17-year-old child in the adult jail in downtown Houston who'd been there on a paperwork error for months. Another gentleman we found recently died because he couldn't pay a couple hundred dollars in cash bail after being accused of stealing frozen meat and, and lawn equipment. Every single day we find examples like that. And I've been posting them on Twitter to try to give people some sense of the pain and brutality that, that most people have no idea, but that we are inflicting right down the street from you in your local jail every single night. I do follow you on Twitter, so I've seen those. They're very powerful. One of the things that you say in the book is that people don't test their daily actions or beliefs for logical consistency with their values. And so there is comfort in intellectual and moral laziness, you say. And this is precisely it, is that we don't know these things are happening, even when we read about them or see them on television or wherever we get a glimpse of the reality we don't actually ask ourselves the hard questions of, wait, is this what we want to do? They're doing this in our name, right, on behalf of the government. So who really decides what's a crime and what's the punishment? Because I think that's one of the questions that maybe as an everyday person, you're wondering, like, when did we come up with this system? Like, how did it come to be? Yeah, I think it's a very important question. I don't even think most people think about how things become crimes. And that's why I tried to give hundreds of examples in the book of things that are crimes, of things that aren't crimes, of things that used to be crimes that aren't now, of things that are crimes now that didn't used to be crimes. And when you look at all this and you look at all it together, you, what you realize is that most crimes are just what powerful people in our society say they are. Police and the powerful interests they represent, they choose which crimes to investigate, which crimes to enforce. And they only look for crimes in some places, some of the time committed by some people. Drugs are a good example of this, right? Like where I went to college at Yale University, there was rampant drug use, rampant underage drinking, et cetera. And yet there were no police raids and arrests. And yet right down the street in New Haven, police were engaging in all of those things to target the same conduct. And they just make very particular choices. The same is true of theft. Wage theft by employers costs people between 50 and $100 billion a year, which is by several orders of magnitude more than all robbery, theft, shoplifting, and other kinds of larceny combined. But we only prosecute people who steal things from the 7-Eleven or the Walmart. We don't prosecute the employers that steal from people's wages. And these are just choices that our law enforcement and, and society is making. And powerful people in our society are constantly deciding what is a crime and what isn't a crime. They are the ones who decided to make it not a crime to engage in the reckless gambling of derivatives trading that ultimately contributed to the financial crisis in this country, even though it used to be a crime in the 1990s. They simply lobbied and paid a bunch of money to wealthy people in Congress and they changed the law. And that is how our laws are created. Once those laws are created, wealthy people also know 
that those laws, like our tax evasion laws, for example, are not going to be enforced. They're not going to be enforced against them with any kind of regularity. What they can rely on, though, is that things like drug laws are going to be ruthlessly enforced against the poorest people in our society. So if you had a magic wand, where would you start with real reform? Which law would you change? So many of them. That's why our organization has been really proud to work on things like this, like the Breathe Act, for example, which is a really beautiful federal act, really the, the, the outgrowth of some incredible work by the Movement for Black Lives on reimagining virtually every aspect of the criminal system, listing out the kinds of laws that should be repealed and the kinds of laws that should be passed. So tell us a little bit more about the Breathe Act. What is it exactly? It's an effort across many different domains to change some of the spending and the logic and the policies that got us into the mass incarceration bureaucracy. So for example, it rolls back things like the 1994 crime bill. It changes the rules for money bail. It eliminates the use of the criminal system to extract fines and fees. It changes the way we think about the punishment of children. It changes, in general, the model of public safety to a much more holistic notion of public safety. Public safety is about whether communities can have the material resources they need to thrive and not about how many armed bureaucrats are patrolling through those communities every single night. And so across the board, from the budget spent on police to the kinds of behavior police are permitted to engage in, to the kinds of crimes they're allowed to arrest for, to how you determine things like whether people are released on bail pending trial, to what kinds of sentences are eligible, um, how once someone is convicted, what happens to them, and what do our prisons and jails look like, and, and do we need those types of entities at all? It, it's asking and answering all of these questions, and they are in the process of developing based on the federal BREATHE Act, local and state versions of the BREATHE Act that will help communities all over the country close jails and reduce the size of their police forces and then spend that money on things that actually help people. You argue that lawyers have a special responsibility and skill set to help here, to address the intellectual failure, to scrutinize the evidence about whether caging people really works, and also to ensure actually in everyday practice that the legal system functions consistently with basic human rights and values. So what is the work that Civil Rights Corps does in this respect? And maybe that gives us an idea of how you envision lawyers getting involved. The first big step for lawyers, just like anyone else, is learn about what's happening in our society. Read critical sources of news. Follow people that are telling you what's going on in the system people who've experienced the harms of the system, curate the kind of information that you expose yourself to because much of the mainstream discourse and, and corporate media surrounding these systems is actually meant to get you to think that most of it's okay. The second step you know, is thinking about how can lawyers not think of themselves as leaders with some kind of special access to knowledge about the system, but rather just ordinary contributors to a social movement and with particular skills that might help that movement. Specifically, as lawyers, we try to think about which cases do we bring, which work do we do, which partners do we work with who are actually trying to shift power in our society? And what is our theory for how anything that we do not just wins a particular case for a client, but actually changes the balance of power in our society? And that's really hard. And it's not something that you learn in law school. And it's something that we still struggle with all the time. And we're not great at it yet. And so we're trying to be 
what we think of as movement lawyers. And hopefully someday we'll get better at it. But it's a long struggle of finding the people that are really trying to alter the balance of power in our society and supporting them as lawyers with whatever they need. So as an everyday person, what are two things I could be doing to help lawyers or to help a real movement to change the balance of power? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think number one, you want to find out who in your community is organizing against the police. Who is organizing to defund the police and redistribute that money to teachers and healthcare workers and communities? Start working with them. Start attending their meetings. Read about what abolition is. Read about the incredible work that's being done to theorize and vision and dream about what kind of society we could have differently. Look at what your local community bail fund is working on. Look at what your local community court watch is doing. Join a local mutual aid organization. Get to know members of your community. Start helping each other in need. This is not about charity. It's not about donating to people who have less than you. It's about, as Miriam Kaba has spoken about so many times, and you can get more resources about stuff like this at transformharm.org, but it's about building solidarity. It's about building connections and relationships that are the foundation for power. It's about coming together with the people in your community and helping other people so that you can see the kinds of injustices that are occurring in our society, so that you can start to build the kinds of relationships that can become political. And that's what I think the power of mutual aid is. And it's a directly oppositional to the typical concept of charity, whereby wealthy people who've extracted a lot from our society, particularly from very harmful aspects, and then give back a little bit of that in a way that doesn't build any power. Mutual aid is all about coming together and working on projects together that increase the capacity of the community, but that also bring people together in ways that create political power. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. And it's very well put. It's about building solidarity as opposed to charity, writing a check and then forgetting about it. So I have only one more question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I think some of what I was just talking about is a real reason for hope. There's a definitely a different conversation now than there was five years ago or 10 years ago, even one year ago. The uprisings this past summer have really changed the cultural consciousness. And there's a lot of people who are very powerful who are pushing against us. A lot of people still trying to increase police budgets and mislead people about the nature of what the criminal system is and what it does and why it does it. But there's so many more people, particularly young people, particularly people who've been impacted by the system, who are speaking up and getting organized in some of these issues. And the final thing I'll say is that the book that you, you, we've been talking about is all of the royalties from the book are donated to the SE Justice Group, which is an amazing organization that is organizing women with incarcerated loved ones. Also, if you're a teacher or a professor, we have set up a fund to get free copies of the book to your students if you assign the book in your class. And for every free copy that goes to a student, there's a free copy to someone in prison. So please spread the word about the book and let's get some of these ideas out there. Oh, yes, we'll definitely do that. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. Thank you for your work and thank you for your book. Congratulations. Thank you all so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. I think the case for defunding the system, which includes police, has been made clear in this conversation. We know this already, of course, but it's still jarring to be reminded of the inequality of what we call justice. When you consider the total picture of how it all works, it's evident that law enforcement is only looking for crimes in some places, some of the time, committed by some people, but not everyone. 
I believe that big ideas do change the world for the better, and I hope that the different kinds of conversations we're having now will yield a real transformation of our legal system that will actually deliver justice. And if you're a teacher or professor assigning this book to your class, be sure to reach out to contact at civilrightscore.org so that you can get a free copy for your students and for an incarcerated person. Next week, our guest is Carl Hart. He's the Ziff Professor of Psychology in Psychiatry at Columbia University and the author of Drug Use for Grown-Ups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. We unpack our deepest misconceptions about using drugs, reveal that most users are responsible adults, and make a case for legalization and regulation. Well, one of the things we have to recognize is that our drug policies are based on lies and misinformation. We have exaggerated the harms associated with all of these drugs and including cannabis, but we're starting to see now that we've been lied to about cannabis. For example, when cannabis was banned in the 1930s, 1937 at the federal level, we said that people who smoke cannabis, they will start smoking cannabis one day, the next day they're doing heroin and then they're killing their mothers and they're engaged in all of these heinous acts, all of these lies we told the public in order to ban cannabis. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.